Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Pattern Recognition, a show that connects the dots that lead to good business decision making. I'm your host, John Hu, growth equity investor at Norwest Venture Partners and former investment banker at Goldman Sachs. So before we get started today, I just wanted to ask a quick favor of you and that if you are enjoying the show, I would greatly appreciate if you could take the two seconds to leave a rating and review. And in return, I promise you that this podcast will never, ever have ads that you'll have to skip through. Now, throughout the podcast, we've spoken at length about the key metrics that drive a subscription-based business model. Whether it's customer retention or LTV to CAC, there are a few KPIs that all subscription companies live by. And we've heard from the founders of companies like Zora or Hims on how one can go about improving those. Now, we've also had very fun conversations with entrepreneurs like Justin McLeod at Hinge around how technology has radically changed even the most intimate aspects of our lives. So that is why I am very excited to announce Ellie Seidman as today's podcast guest, as Ellie is the CEO of Tinder, which many of you know as the pioneering dating app. Now, since Tinder introduced the concept of swiping right for love back in 2012, Tinder has now gone on to generate hundreds of millions in revenue via a freemium subscription model. So it's no surprise that Ali spends the bulk of his time thinking through not only how to improve the KPIs of his business, but also how Tinder will play a role not only in the future of dating, but also broader human connection. So in today's podcast, Ellie and I discuss the consistent patterns that lead to a viral consumer application. From feedback loops to investing in user trust and safety, there are a whole host of variables to control when designing an app that's accessible to a global audience. Now, Ellie and I also take the time to discuss how we think the world is moving into an era of demanding more authentic connection, where if we want to succeed, we have to put the user first. So why don't we get started? Hey, Ellie, how's it going? It's going great. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks for taking some time. So why don't we lay out a bit of context for the audience and talk through how you came to be the CEO of Tinder? You know, I graduated from Penn in 1997 with an engineering degree, and I was an entrepreneur for almost 15 years. You know, I had worked at a software company in Austin, Texas called Trilogy, which actually has produced a whole bunch of alumni who have gone on to all kinds of interesting things and uh, across kind of broader tech. I remember graduating and somebody was asking me what I was going to go do. And I said, I'm going to work in the business side of technology. And, you know, this is at a time, certainly where I was graduating from, where everybody went and became bankers or consultants for like a traditional CPG company. It was considered, you know, somewhat, somewhat desirable, not just to go to Wall Street, but even to go to a company like Procter & Gamble. And in 97, you know, you had the dot-com booms really getting into full swing. And uh, I said, I want to go into the business of tech, but it was, it was remarkable how few people understood that. Today, I think you can understand that pretty easily, but at the time not super well understood. And then after, you know, Trilogy, I went on to spend really my formative parts of my career at two different startups that I ran, each for a little bit under seven years. And so that's how I started to get to do this. And then eventually kind of jump a few steps forward. I got a call from one of the founders of OkCupid, who was on the board of Match Group, the parent company of Tinder. And he said, you know, hey, we're looking for somebody to be the CEO of OkCupid. And this is in the early part of 2016, so almost four years ago now. And I ended up at OkCupid as the CEO, which was a very interesting brand and product turnaround story. And a lot of interesting challenges there. And then, you know, a year and a half later, became the CEO of Tinder. Uh, both OkCupid and Tinder are owned by Match Group, which is our parent company. 
And before we talk about your vision for the future of dating, I'd love to set some groundwork for the audience here where I pretty much assume everyone has either heard of Tinder or has used Tinder. But could you speak towards how Tinder has revolutionized dating so far? Yeah, you really can't understand Tinder and, and kind of more broadly, you know, 2019 in the world of digital communities that are specifically geared for meeting new people without looking at this in a little bit of a historical context. Because if you go back to 2012, when we were founded, young people who are the core of our audience, right, people who are 18 to 25 and today's Gen Z, didn't use an app, didn't use a digital community that would have been a, really a website at the time more than anything to meet new people. It just wasn't done. You, you went to a college campus as an 18-year-old in the U.S., and you definitely did not use something like Tinder. And the technology for meeting new people is not a new invention. It's been actually around, depending upon how you're looking at it, for 30 or even 40 years. You know, almost from the very beginning when computers got networked together, people started using those networks to try to meet new people. So there's very interesting stories going all the way back to things like CompuServe and AOL forums, and even before that, to the BBSs. But it really never took off. It never became a mainstream thing. On the contrary, it was highly stigmatized. In 2012, we launched on U.S. college campuses with clearly a breakthrough product design, a very innovative, lightweight, fun, fun is really important, product experience. And, you know, it takes hold. A lot of things were becoming true or had become true at that time, particularly that you were using a smartphone to do almost everything, right? Using it to listen to music and to read books and whatever else you could imagine, browse the web, chat, message. And so the idea of this device, which you're using all the time, to now use an app on it, which is great at helping you meet new people if you're on a college campus, that started to kind of feel like it made sense, whereas for the decades before, it hadn't. Since then, we've very quickly gone from being a U.S. college kid thing to growing around the world, right? You know, Seoul and Tokyo and Paris and London, and not just 18, and 19, and 20-year-olds, but 25-year-olds and 30-year-olds. So it became really a social phenomenon. It became that very quickly, even though it started on U.S. college campuses. There have now been well over 300 million people who have used Tinder. And it's the world's largest community by far where the intent is to go there to meet new people. And just given the success today that you have seen in becoming a global phenomenon, right, where you've coined the term swipe right, what is your vision for 2019 and beyond? I mean, what are the new frontiers of dating that Tinder has yet to solve? Yeah, I, mean, I think that the thing that we think about a lot is that today's generation of Gen Z who walks in the door at Tinder has had a very different formative experience with you know, social communities, digital social communities than the generation that came before them. You know, if you go back to 2010, 11, 12, the world of social networking of digital social communities was viewed at the time as kind of a winner take all game that Facebook had won. There was going to be one big social network. You're going to be on that. It was going to kind of be the entirety of your social networking, the entirety of your digital social life. And so if you were kind of coming of age in 2010, 11, 12, 13, that's the world you grew up in. You know, today's 18-year-olds who arrive on Tinder, Tinder's an 18-plus app, have grown up in a very different world, right? They've grown up in a world where there are multiple digital communities that they're using in parallel. And, you know, they're maybe using Discord and then Snap and WhatsApp and Messenger 
and just go down the list and they're using them all in parallel. And each of these has a very specific purpose. And more broadly, because, you know, we live in a social construct, not just a functional construct. Each of these has their own specific sub community. You know, who your community is on Snap is very different than who your community is on Tinder. So that's the backdrop for this huge change that what we're seeing with Gen Z. I mean, the second part that's happened is we've had a series of interesting platform shifts within these social networks. You know, we went from being a text-based world to then an image-based world, and now very much the disruption and the platform disruption is video, right? You know, if you look at our Gen Z users, their ability to produce a compelling video story about themselves or about their life, tell stories, you know, with that video, it's really remarkable. And I think that's a, a platform shift in a sense that hasn't gotten as much attention as the platform shift that we had from web to mobile, for example, but it is a really profound one in terms of how it impacts a digital social community. So that's kind of the major threads of what's happening for Tinder at this moment. And I think when you look down the road, the presence that you're managing on Tinder is not a, I come in, I find a relationship, I get married, I leave. There was a history of marriage apps. You know, you join at some age where you were intending to get married. It was very functional. It's kind of like a utility to get married. You come in, you leave, and you're done. You know, for Tinder, we see very clearly that people join at 18, and they're going to be on and off in this kind of single journey of their life for a very long time. The demographics are very clear. This is not a new trend. It's been this way for, you know, going on decades at this point. And so managing their presence and managing their growth and managing how they're evolving and who they are is a long-term story for them. So that has profound impact, of course, at a human level for all of our members. And then for us at a product level has a profound impact. And there's lots of exciting things coming there. You've seen things like Swipe Night. I think where this goes, if we look at a five and a 10-year continuum, is that we're actually going to see people go effectively on first dates in an entirely digital world. And the logistics and the expense and the time and the complexity of managing a physical world date, which many of our members say, well, I got that date and you know, I realized in five minutes there was no chemistry. We're going to solve that problem in the years to come with a generation that is ready for that problem to be solved. That's great. And before we dive into some of the innovations your team is bringing to market, like say a swipe night, I want to hone in on something you just said around how social apps were winner take all markets in the previous paradigm, where now we're seeing new apps rise to the surface that serve different niches, right? And so when I think about Tinder in its early days, it very much so had that same first mover advantage. But since then, we've seen the rise of a number of other dating apps, whether those be in the match umbrella, like a hinge, or whether those be independent competitors like a Bumble. And so I'm curious, how do you think about Tinder's brand and differentiation as when I think about Tinder anecdotally within the millennial generation, just very candidly, Tinder has a very different brand than let's say Hinge, where Tinder is seen as the less serious, more of a hookup app in our lives and Hinge is much more so for serious dating. So how exactly do you think about Tinder's brand? Yeah. So, I mean, the high level, it's kind of two different parts of it, right? One is how does the category kind of segment? You know, what am I seeing? How is it going? So start, it's not a winner take all market. That's very clear. There are multiple different communities, multiple different brands. This is true around the world. You know, Tinder is by far the biggest of them, but it's not the only one. And so you have things like Hinge or OkCupid, which have a different community orientation, a different kind of segmentation if you're using a marketer's perspective than Tinder does. 
And so that's the backdrop. I think it's, that's been very clear. If you think about specifically why, I think that, you know, we have lots of parallels of this from the physical world, right? I think of one of the fascinating things about running Tinder is that it's got all the components of running a tech business, right? We're a scale technology company. The majority of the people who work for Tinder are engineers and product managers. And so it looks in a lot of ways like the tech companies you think about, but we're in a part of people's lives that is deeply personal and deeply social. It's arguably the place where you're developing the most important connection or connections you're going to develop aside from your closest friends. And so that brings with it a very important kind of element of emotion. And then lastly, I think an idea that doesn't get talked about a lot is, you know, we are a club, right? All these places are clubs. They're not the same thing as belonging to the Harvard club or to going to a nightclub on 11th Avenue in New York, but they are clubs. And, you know, each person might want to be in a different club at different parts of their life. They might want to be in multiple clubs at the same time. And so it's not a perfect analogy, but there's a lot of that analogy in there. And that's why you see some of the, the different apps that come about, whether it's us or Hinge or OkCupid. You know, Tinder specifically is not really one thing. You know, we're everywhere around the world and the community that Tinder is, is going to reflect very much where you are in the world and where you are in your personal life. You know, if you're 18 on a U.S. college campus, Tinder is a certain community. And it's definitely more casual. You know, how many 18-year-olds do you know on college campuses who are focused on finding the one and only love of their life? <laughs> that's not something we're very non-judgmental. We say, like, look, that's a part of your single journey. It's the part that you're in now. And the relationships you're having, the connections you're making now are not permanent connections or may not be permanent connections. Okay. Doesn't make them lesser. If you look at our 28-year-old members in Tokyo, those are more intended on a permanent relationship, but in the spectrum of things, they're not people who are saying, hey, I'm getting on Tinder today to get married next month. They are more open-minded. They're kind of in a, what I call a see what happens kind of mentality versus in some of the most seriously focused apps where it's like, I'm here, I'm here to get married. I'm getting married tomorrow. And it's very transactional in that way. Our members are in a more open frame of mind. That's really helpful context. And just thinking about the problems you would and challenges you would face at scale, right? You're solving one broad category of relationships and romance, but even talking about the two tangible examples you gave there, right? So the 18-year-old, let's say in the States and the 28-year-old in Tokyo, those are very, very different use cases and user personas. So I'm curious, how exactly do you approach balancing, addressing very different consumers with likely very different needs in, in terms of their UI and their UX and also the functionality? Yeah, it's a great question. The short answer is it's difficult because you're not just trying to understand, you know, kind of what is usable. You're trying to understand what is culturally and socially a norm. You know, an easy example extending on the Tokyo example is that people will give their blood type, perhaps akin to the way somebody in the U.S. might give their horoscope as an example of personal and individual can, you know, connection or chemistry. You know, that's not really in the realm of functional, but it's certainly in the realm of important and you know, emotional and around a kind of a very emotional topic, which is connecting to people you don't know for to create romantic or personal connections. I think that's one. I think there are things that are more functional that also again relate to the social backdrop that we operate in. An easy example there is if you look across some of the countries that we operate in, 
like Korea or Japan, you're going to see that people are less likely to put a picture of their face directly on Tinder. They might try to obfuscate their face. And that really relates to social stigma, cultural stigma, which is still evolving. You know, in the U.S., go back to 2012, not that long ago, that 18-year-old on that U.S. college campus was just not joining a website. They weren't going to go on Match.com. They weren't going to go on OkCupid. Today, that's a rite of passage for that person. And the cultural stigma is, I would say, completely gone or very close to completely gone. And on the contrary, like it's the default. That's not where we are in Japan. And so we have to build different product experiences that are sensitive to what our members are going through, where they are both in their individual life, and that's going to vary whether you're 18 or 28, but also the backdrop of their social culture. And that's going to be quite different depending upon where you are in the world. I think we've been fortunate that the core of Tinder has universal resonance. You know, this idea that I can see somebody across the room and there's a kind of a certain click that happens and that's a match. That core essence of Tinder, which is there from the beginning, is what has made us so successful and is quite universal. But then from there, there's lots of places in which it branches off. Got it. That makes sense. So then thinking about current day innovations, you'd mentioned before Swipe Night. So would love to talk about that as a case study for how Tinder is leveraging data and R&D to provide a better user experience. So for the audience's sake here, could you talk a little bit more about what exactly is Swipe Night, why the team looked into that, just how that resonates with the Gen Z audience? Yeah, you know, what we saw with our members is that, you know, Tinder very effective, you create a match. And so that's a very lightweight and enjoyable experience, right? You're going through Tinder and seeing this broad and diverse group of people. And, you know, everybody kind of knows we have the iconic swipe. You swipe right on somebody, they swipe right on you. And now you've unlocked a match. And that obviously has been incredibly successful. It's why Tinder is now known basically around the world. But what we sell with our members is that they really struggle with what to do next. You're staring at an empty messenger screen. You know, there's some person you don't know yet, you haven't connected to, there's no momentum around your conversation, there's not yet chemistry. And so how do I handle it? And I actually think a physical world analogy is really helpful here. And if you think about the challenge in the physical world of approaching somebody, and the analogy that we like is you're at a music festival, you're going with your friends, and you think to yourself, oh, the music festival is going to be amazing, and I'm going to go there, and I'm going to meet new people, and it's going to be great. And you go to the music festival and you're hanging out with your friends and you see other people, you know, hanging out with their friends. You have to be extraordinarily bold and extroverted to go up to somebody in the real world and introduce yourself. That's very anxiety provoking for most people. And the core of Tinder solved that problem, the kind of, you know, the approach. How do I approach somebody that I don't yet know? In the physical world, though, that if you did manage to get over the threshold of that anxiety and approach somebody... I would argue that it actually gets a lot easier from there, right? You have all this environmental context, whether it's something as simple as the weather or the music that's playing, the band that's playing. And so you'd use that to make small talk and hopefully develop some conversation. On Tinder, there's no context, right? You can't say to the other person, oh, you're also on Tinder, because like, yeah, obviously you're also on Tinder, right? And that's how this thing works. And so we saw our members, the manifestation of that is you see the members struggle with what to say. And this is, by the way, true for men and women. It doesn't matter who's saying, it doesn't matter who's going first. It's hard. You're staring at an empty screen. So as a result, the majority of what people come up with is hi or hey, which totally makes sense, but doesn't really do a great job of progressing the conversation. 
And so we thought a lot about that problem. And that was really an inspiration. How do we, you know, we've solved the, the kind of problem of the approach, but how do we help our members make conversation? And, you know, the thing that the backdrop of all this is at a macro level, across the social universe, across all of, you know, social networking and communities and just the environment, what you see is that content, whether that's memes or emojis or shared links, has become really the language of conversation. That's in a lot of ways the shared context. And so we thought a lot about how do we give people shared context? How do we give people an experience that allows them to break the ice and make conversation? That, that was kind of the inspiration from a problem-solving perspective for Swipe Night. And as we think about removing more friction in the dating lifecycle in order to facilitate more connection, beyond, let's say, adding in the feedback loop of who was a good date or not, are there any other innovations you focus on as well? Well, I think the one we're very early on, right, is the whole environment of Swipe Night. I mean, I think, you know, we think a lot about can we create shared experiences for people? You know, to what extent can we create something that is feels more like a community that's active and alive, that has more of the element of the physical world? I think there are things that are great about the physical world. You know, some of the experiences like that music festival are the most memorable experiences that are out there in one's social life and even more broadly in one's life. And the challenge is a lot of those experiences, a lot of those shared social experiences are accessible only to a very small fraction of the world. They're expensive. They take up precious time. So as, as a result, they're not very democratized. And so we're very interested in, if you look at Swipe Night, which is a first-person adventure, right, where you come into the app and you're in a, inside of a story where you yourself are a part of the story, and the decisions you're making at critical junctures in the story unfold the story. They cause the story to kind of go down different paths. And then as you unfold that story, that has the potential to unlock different matches with other people. And then from there, the story is something that you can talk about and bond with, with the other person that you've matched with. Like that's a shared experience. It's happening in a digital environment. It's broadly available, right? So it's highly democratized. I think we're at the very, very tip of the iceberg around this idea of if I'm 18 years old today, I've grown up in a world where the digital tools of my social life have been with me from the get-go, and now I'm on Tinder at 18 and 19 and 20, am I ready to have a digital social experience that is a shared experience with the whole community or part of the community? I think we are. And I think there's a lot of innovation to come in that space. And as we do, we're taking something that's incredibly great from the physical world, but giving it all the scale that the digital world has. And so that's, I think, you know, we're an area we're just incredibly excited about. Swipe Night is the first example of that. But, you know, Product Development 101, right, you know, what we put in the market, some parts work, some parts don't, some parts we get feedback on, et cetera. And that in turn gives us more wisdom and learning. And then we iterate and get smarter and smarter. We're incredibly happy with the outcomes that we've generated from Swipe Night already, but what we're even happier about is all the wisdom that it's bringing to us, all the insight that it's bringing to us around this incredibly exciting area of shared digital experience, of shared social experience. Yeah. And I think when you mentioned terms like democratization and building community and shared digital experiences, that hits at something I think is more core to the human condition that in this now very clearly mobile age of connectivity, I think folks, whether those be 18-year-olds or 25-year-olds or 40-year-olds feel as age of hyper-connectivity, 
there's this increasingly feeling of loneliness and whether that be through some of the social media platforms and the incumbents there, I think there's a real lack of authentic connection. And so as I think about, let's say a swipe night that to some degree hits at that thesis of trying to build more authentic connection. And so if I were to throw that back on you as a question, I mean, as you think about Tinder, as you think just broadly about consumer applications, how can one help foster more authentic human connection? Yeah, I think it's a fascinating topic and a really good point. And if you look at so much of what's happening right now, you know, in the world of you know, just broadly, the kind of consumption, you know, the device consumption, all the time you spend on your device, so much of it is you solo with something, you know, whether that's watching a short video, you're not engaged with other people, you're not engaged with a community. There's another version of that, which is you're presenting kind of the very best version of yourself. And, you know, I, I'm always very concerned about a world in which, as people, we compare our inner life to other people's external life, right? I think that it's a natural reflex to do that. But, you know, it belies the fact that each of us in our internal life is different from what might be seen by someone else looking out. You know, I think there's a lot of people who have talked about this with regards to being, you know, caring in your day-to-day life. You don't know what somebody else is going through. And knowing that, I think, causes you to have more empathy and more care for people as you engage with them. And I think a lot, unfortunately, of what's happening out there, you know, kind of exacerbate some of that. What The wonderful thing about Tinder, right, is Tinder is fundamentally about connecting to other people and actually having real relationships. You're not having a relationship with some short video clip from an influencer. You're actually trying to connect to another real person. Within that is this idea of authenticity, right? And so if you look at SwipeNet, one of the things that has we've seen be resonant is as you're going through this and you're making some of the decisions, and you have to make them very quickly. That's intentional. You have to make these decisions kind of in seven seconds. So there's a certain amount of your reflex that is, you know, coming across as more authentic. It's less crafted. It's less me presenting this manicured image to the outside world. And then on top of that, it's a shared experience with other people who are having the same experience. So now we're all in this experience together. So this idea of like, how do we get back more to our roots of connecting with other people, with our social life, with others being the best part of life and how do we do that in an authentic way is very much at the root of things like Swipe Night. And it's something that we think about a ton. And I broadly am concerned about some of the things that are making us more lonely in society. So let's picture a world where Tinder has solved the connection issue. So now we can focus on other problems that inherently come with a business like yours at scale. Like, for example, user trust and safety which I would imagine is both a very tenuous, but also a very interesting problem to solve. So as you think about your platform and the issues it faces with bots or the safety of meeting with strangers online or offline or even lewd photos, how have you been able to handle that across hundreds of millions of users? Yeah, I mean, it's an incredibly important topic and one that gets a lot of attention. There's a very big trust and safety team you know, at Tinder, and this is comprised really of three parts. Users are very helpful. They provide reporting to us. So that's a very important signal. And we're very thankful to them. We, we prompt them to do that. We're very thankful to them. And number two is we've got a lot of technology working behind the scenes to try to identify problems, identify bad actors or potentially bad actors, people who, and bad actors here cross a range. You know, at the very top of it is like, if you're impolite or a harasser, we want you out. We've done a variety of things there to remove those people. We ban a lot of people 
from Tinder for misbehaving inside of this community. And we want to do that better and quicker with every passing quarter. And we do. I think I'm very proud of our accomplishments there. We've used a lot of uh, AI, a lot of machine learning models to, to help us there. And so that's been a big, a big source of leverage for us. And then we couple that with a large human moderation team that is managing, you know, range of issues from, okay, you know, what kind of photos are being posted, what kind of content is being posted, all the way to the most sensitive issues. And, you know, so it's, a, it's an area of it that gets a tremendous amount of attention from us. You know, what I like to remind people is, unfortunately, society is in a perfect place. And, you know, with this same thoughtfulness that you use in the physical world, you should use that same thoughtfulness on any digital platform whether that's Tinder or any other, you should bring that same thoughtfulness because these are not alternate universes. They reflect the society we live in. That being said, you know, we're putting a tremendous amount of energy and attention against the trust and safety issue. And we want people when they walk in the door to know that Tinder is here to help and is taking it incredibly seriously and is doing a lot to ensure that's the case. And so we've had a series of things that we've done that we've talked about publicly. You know, an example of that would be Traveler Alert you know, for our LGBTQ community, there are unfortunately parts of the world where, you know, being gay is not okay. It's not sanctioned. It is unsafe. And that is terribly unfortunate. And so we said, hey, you know, we're going to alert our members when they move into these environments that they may have a false sense of security about using Tinder and we want them to be you know, alerted to that and be careful. And so that's a, just one of many examples of things we've done. There's a lot more coming as well. It's an area that's getting a tremendous amount of attention uh, from us. That's great. So then shifting more towards the business side of things, what are the key KPIs and metrics that you use to track the health of the business? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You know, the very top of it, one of the important things to remember is that Tinder is very distinct from basically all the other social platforms you might think of in that we're not ad-driven, right? It's a freemium business model and a small percentage of our members are choosing to pay us for paid features that make their experience on Tinder better. But the vast majority of our members are using Tinder entirely for free. You know, more than 98% of our revenue next year will come from these members paying us for these paid features. And so we think that's really important because it aligns our business model to the success of our members. You know, we're not focused on a KPI of time and attention, for example. You know, whether you use the app for a minute, 10 minutes, or an hour this week, this month, this year is not really in our function of KPIs. What's it, what we care about is, is the platform effective, right? Do you get what you want from it? And we see that the relationship between our business model and member success being aligned is incredibly powerful for us. It's also, and I think people have now started to learn this and understand this, it's also a really good business. So if you're looking at it from a business model perspective or as kind of a you know MBA student case study, it's a really fantastic business. And that part of the story has become quite clear over the past two, three years. You know, if you look at what we've said publicly about 2018 versus 17, you know, we grew the revenue about 100 percent, you know, went from about 400 to about 800 million dollars. So this is a very large business operating at very large revenue and profit scale. It generates a lot of real profits and it does so remarkably by asking our members to pay us for the benefits that they get. Yeah, I think aligning incentives is the key theme there. And my personal thesis is that the social platforms of today that are so ad driven, I think 
that's been a large part of their success and I think in the future may actually be part of their downfall as well as I think society wakes up to the addiction around invasive headlines and advertising as opposed to figuring out a direct subscription relationship with their customer as opposed to serving up that user as the product itself. But in terms of KPIs and metrics here, right, just to give the audience a better sense of how to think about the Tinder business, what I think of this as a freemium business model, it's around conversion, right, from going from a free user to a premium user. It's also thinking about stuff like user churn and cohort retention. So maybe just honing in on, let's say, freemium conversion here. Could you give a case study of how you leveraging data or thinking about improving the user experience actually had showed a lift in your user conversion to paid subscribers? Yeah, I mean, so it is a subscriber model. We think a lot about on the business side of our business, how are members converting to paid, which members are choosing to convert, at what point in their user journey are they converting in their first hour, in their first day? Are they converting in their first week, in their first month? Why? You know, then, of course, there's the episodic nature of the very product space that we're in, right? You know, these are relationships. You know, we have a, in many cases, going to have a decade-long journey with our members, and they're going to cycle in and out in a way that is kind of in rhythm with their actual, so the underlying social life, right? They're 18, they join Tinder, they come, they go, they come, they go, and that happens, you know, for a decade or more until they settle down permanently. And so there's a kind of this rhythm to not just people who are becoming brand new users who are here for the first time, but also returning. And they may be returning after a month away or a year away or two years away. And so there's these different, you know, what I would call onboarding moments. And then associated with that, from a business perspective, there's conversion moments. Are they subscribing for the first time? Are they becoming a subscriber again after having lapsed for a period of time? And so we're monitoring all of the KPIs that illustrate what's happening there. You know, really interesting example of something that we've talked about pretty publicly is, you know, when we released Tinder Gold, Tinder Gold is comprised primarily, but not entirely of a, of a feature called Likes You. Likes You is that you can see who has liked you instead of that being obfuscated from you and only uncoverable with a match. You can actually see who the inbound attention that you've received. And the that was a very successful feature. And that drove a lot of growth for us from 17 to 18 and earlier this year, we released an update to that, which was based on an insight, which was, you know, if you could merchandise better, how those, you know, A, a make those likes more visible, make it clear that they were happening because it was kind of buried in the app. It was a little bit of a step down in a level down in the app, bring that to the top of the app. And then also further merchandise more effectively and, and storytell more effectively the idea of likes you, you know that it would be clear to our members, A, that the features exists, and B, what the feature is. And so that came from a lot of hard work to look at a, a bunch of critical statistics around how our members were understanding our paid features, what they were understanding the value proposition to be. So both a qualitative and a quantitative. And I think that part is really important, right? You really need to understand the why. Just understanding the numbers often won't tell you the why behind them. If we look at actually Swipe Night, we're seeing some incredibly powerful numbers, which is great, but that doesn't by itself doesn't tell us why. And so what we're always focused on with the teams is, hey, look, it's great just to move metrics, but unless we understand the why, we've actually left on the table a lot of the real value, and that value is insight and learning. And so Tinder Gold and the evolution of Tinder Gold is a really easy example to think of in terms of our paid subs, but that idea generalizes. Got it. So 
Ellie, with the last part of our time here, would love to shift to the last part of the podcast, which centers around the title, which is pattern recognition. I'm curious, what are the consistent patterns or themes you see across the most successful consumer applications? You know, there's a lot of things that are quite mechanical, right, that you're seeing across probably consumer social applications around how they behave. You know, members need feedback loops. They need the way to know, am I being successful? Is this thing working for me? What does it take for it to work for me? And so that's a very clear pattern that in our world, you see a lot of it and it manifests in all kinds of places. And I think that actually, if you don't give pretty clear feedback, then you actually frustrate members. They find the product difficult to use or opaque or unclear about how it's working or, or why it's working. And so that's a, that to me is something that I think you can look across all of the social universe today and see very clearly representing. And so that's one that's very, that's very top of mind for us. And sorry, Ali, just so I and the audience understand a little bit better. So by feedback, I'm imagining for Tinder, that means getting a mutual like, but curious if you could provide specific tangible examples across other platforms as well. Yeah. So if you go to Instagram and you post a story and nobody gives you any reaction to it, you will not know whether or not you're kind of shouting into the void. And so, you know, you think of the, the feedback that you're getting from the community in an easy example, which is, is very obvious if you're in a messenger and you send something to somebody and nobody responds, then at some level, you don't even know if it's delivered. In fact, the messengers give you feedback on delivery for exactly that reason. You know, before you even get to the point of has somebody responded, you want to know whether it's been delivered. And then the next level might be that it's been read. And then finally, the next level that, you know, somebody's actually responded. That idea of that feedback loop is really important because otherwise these procs, which don't have a physical reaction to you, can seem like they're a little bit opaque. You know, in the world of Tinder, right, exactly. You said it right. It's inbound likes, but really it's matches. You know, I've actually been in focus groups where somebody has said, I think Tinder is broken and they're saying it technically. Uh, They mean in a technical sense, but what they're really actually saying is, hey, for whatever reason, I didn't get a match. And for them, it's kind of, in a sense, broken. It's not technically broken, but it didn't give them, it wasn't accomplishing for them (laughs) what they wanted. And that critical milestone, right, for the member, that kind of like magic moment is really important. So identifying what those magic moments are and then giving feedback around them is something I think you see across all the social platforms and is really powerful and, and important. That's great. And any other key patterns you see? I think, you know, I think I'll go back to something that you said. I think that we're seeing, you know, I think it's early. I think we're seeing members wanting to understand how these businesses work, right? And understand, you know, what is the product that's being sold? I I love that quote. I'm probably going to butcher it. But, you know, if you're not sure what product is being sold, you know, you're the product, you're the one who's being sold. And I think that this idea, I think there's now a broad pattern of members across different types of products and different categories being willing to pay for value. You know, I actually was told this by an entrepreneur who I really respect, and he was talking about his own product category. And he said, you know, the word I like to use is that members reward, customers reward us with revenue. They reward us with a purchase and they reward us when we deliver, you know, X, Y, and Z societal value. And I think that that's a really important idea that, you know, using the word reward instead of the word purchase, does actually reflect a broader trend that we see. You know, in a capitalistic world that we live in, money is the vehicle, and we get to use that money to vote on the things that matter and don't matter to us. And so we reward 
brands that we care about that have good values, reward products that deliver great function to us. So I think this idea of consumers having moved beyond just purely like I need the refrigerator to be cold, but I actually want deeper alignment with the brand, whether that's functional alignment or business model alignment, or it's, you know, in a sense, spiritual alignment. This is a brand that I feel good about rewarding with my money is a big idea and something that I think we're seeing in lots of different places across the kind of the consumer landscape, whether that's in digital apps like ours or it's in physical products. That's a, that's a big idea. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think it's been a consistent pattern on the podcast where if you think about capitalism, even 30 years ago, that was manufacturing companies pushing products to wholesalers and pushing products through a bunch of different distribution channels, right? being four steps removed from the consumer and just really pushing product as opposed to aligning incentives, getting to know your customer, going direct to them, and really asking for the reward of being truly aligned with the customer, having that authentic brand and providing real value as opposed to just saying, you should buy this. So definitely agree with you there. And then so shifting more towards a personal aspect around pattern recognition, are there any mental models that you use in your own decision-making process? Obviously, the area of biases of our psychological and cognitive biases has gotten a lot of attention in the past few years. You know, there's such an interesting like Charlie Munger, who's, I would say, a personal intellectual hero for me and obviously for many others. You know, has gotten a lot of it, you know, has been talking about, you know, psychological biases, cognitive biases for a long time, you know, going back to a very famous lecture he gave at Harvard, you know, many, many years ago at this point, probably two or three decades ago. And so that's, but it's an area that I think for a lot of good reasons has gotten a lot of attention in recent years. You know, there's a great book that I read probably when I was in my early 20s, which was, you know, influenced by Caldini. You know, more recently, there's Thinking Fast and Slow by Kahneman. You know, Kahneman obviously influenced a lot of people. I'm definitely one of them. So I'm trying to apply my awareness of and understanding of the various cognitive biases as we go through our decision-making processes. I'd say, you know, some more tangibly, more tactically, you know, a couple things that I like to do. I really like the idea that Munger has about inverting. And an easy example of what it means to invert a problem is if you say to yourself, hey, I want to grow in India. The problem space is I want to grow Tinder in India. That's an approach to trying to solve that problem. If you invert it, what you would say is, what is stopping me from growing in India? And I find this idea of inverting problems to be very powerful as a kind of a framework for thinking through problems. The other one, which I like, is to really just take a part of problem into all of its discrete components and actually write those down. I think it's really, really critical to write them down and then to weight all of them and say, okay, these are all the areas. I think I understand all the areas. Have we, have we been really precise around all the areas that are governing them? Do we understand their relative weights and relative importances? Not all of them are equally important and kind of score them in some way. And then, you know, I've totally taken this from Kahneman you then apply after having done that. And typically you want to wait a day or two or even more and have had multiple people do that process. Then you want to actually close your eyes and use your intuition. You literally say, okay, like just let my intuition give me the answer. And then you don't use one process or the other. You use your intuition, which is kind of like whatever you want to call that, your subconscious, your kind of like you know, your back brain working along with the framework that you've actually scored on. And, you know, that leads you to a better answer than doing either of those alone. A critical part of all this is slowing down. You know, I think 
I'm very, very, very influenced by the idea that almost everything that we do day in, day out does not need an instantaneous response. You know, we live in a fast paced world, but the number of problems that number of challenges, number of decisions that, are, that I'm faced with in a given week, month or year that need an instantaneous answer is nearly zero. And buying time, I always find is a better answer. It's kind of like, you know, let me sleep on that. Let's sleep on that. Let's think about it. Let's come back to it in a week. Let's see how it feels after we've thought about it and dissected it and waited a week. So those are some of the, the tools that, that we're using here a lot as we go through the world and make decisions. The last one would be, how do you make sure to think about things in time? You know, I find that a lot of thinking, people ask themselves, what's the answer for right now? It's, you don't actually explicitly state the out, the out loud right now, but really thinking, okay, what's the answer a year from now or two years from now? How is all this all going to unfold? Forcing yourself to ha- come up with a point of view about how it's going to unfold two and three and four years is not, I don't think, that intuitive. Yeah. And I think a good tangible example of that is thinking about building it and scaling a team. The team that solves the problem today and in a year or two may not be the right team to solve that problem as well. But I love your perspective around responding slow. I think in this age of instant gratification, there's so much urgency or this contrived self-induced sense of urgency to respond to all the emails immediately, check all your texts and respond. And I think that's a really great perspective to have. And I actually think to some degree it actually translates into my next question, which is a much more personal question as you think about you know the stressors of running a business as large as impactful as Tinder is today. As you reflect on building a meaningful career and, and fostering gratitude and joy and, and thinking slow, do you have any advice for upcoming entrepreneurs or CEOs or operators? Yeah, I'm very influenced. I, don't, I wish I could give the attribution here, but I'm very influenced by something that I heard probably four or five years ago, which struck me as being deeply true and something that I definitely see in my career. And it connects to, I think, foundational ideas. You know, one is, and one that I personally believe in, and I talk to our team here at Tinder about a lot is, you know, you really want to try to grow year in and year out in absolute amounts that are the same or more as the year before. The reason absolute amounts is important is because percentages are misleading here, right? And when you're graduating from college or going into college or going into 10th grade or 11th grade, the absolute amount you're going to learn is very large and the percentages are even larger. The challenge as you progress in your life is not so much to keep the percentages that large, that becomes kind of the law of large numbers, but rather the absolutes. You know, Can you learn as much going from 28 to 29 as you did going into your you know, junior or senior year of, of college or high school. And if you can, and this is where I don't know who to give the attribution to, if you can, my observation is that life ends up at a business level and a career level very successful. That when you play that out, that learning compounds. And you don't control everything in life. In fact, the number of things we control is relatively small. Luck is an enormous part of life. It's certainly been an enormous part of my life. But on the part that you're controlling, it's going to compound. And that's really powerful. And I think that, and I've observed that people get what they're looking for. They get success. They don't get exactly what they want. They very often don't get it on exactly the time frame that they want. And so I think that leads to the second part, which I've found is kind of a profound sense of joy for me has been as I let go of the expectation of I need X, Y, or Z to happen on this time horizon. It's got to happen in this month or this year. And just say, look, I'm happy with the path. I'm happy with the 
plan. I'm happy with what I'm doing day in, day out. I'm deriving joy from that. And the whole experience became much less anxiety provoking, much more joyful. And it can be hard to like take somebody else's advice on this, right? Oh, you know, you could hear what I'm saying is, oh, yeah, well, you've achieved success. And so it's very easy for you to say. And I totally get that because I was on the other side very, very much. But I know that as I was able to release kind of the need for success has got to happen in this way on this time frame, that was very powerful. Actually, it's interesting. My wife and I talk about this a lot. You know, she's like, what do you think will happen in the next five years or 10 years? And I always say to her, you know, it's funny. Do you think that we've been very good at figuring that out over the past five or 10 years? <laughs> and the answer is, you know, no, like I did not know five years ago or 10 years ago that I'd be sitting here talking to you. And I don't think I've been very good at predicting it. And so I think as letting go of some of that expectation that you can predict the future is actually, I think, a, a huge a kind of a superpower that if you can train yourself to do is very powerful. Yeah, I think in some ways, expectation limits potential. So I very much so agree with you there. And actually have one last question for you here, Ali. I, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask it for the sake of the audience. But is there any consistent pattern or theme across the most successful Tinder profiles? <laughs> mm. This is the one that everybody likes. I think, you know, this is the one that I love to give because I really mean this and believe it. The thing that stands out the most on Tinder in particular is being yourself, right? You yourself are good enough. You're not going to, it's not a popularity contest, right? It's not about being good enough for everyone. This is not like trying to be a celebrity. This is about finding somebody who appreciates you. And you want to cut through all the superficial stuff as quickly as possible, right? To be you, because there's somebody out there who will appreciate you and you're going to be you. You want to be the authentic version of you. So you want to showcase that, you know? And so I think that would be the advice I would give in the physical world. It's definitely the advice that needs to be applied to Tinder profiles. I think the more interesting ones are far better than the ones that are trying to be more superficial. So be yourself and show that. Now, take some creativity to show yourself, right? I think that's true whether, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you were writing an essay. Today, obviously, we live in a world where the mediums are primarily visual. So you have to figure out a way to be interesting, you know, to be yourself and show it in an interesting way. But that's the best thing you can possibly do. There's somebody out there who's great for you and you just want to show yourself so they can find you. All roads lead back to authenticity. That's right. It's really true. Yeah. Well, Ellie, this has been a very interesting and insightful conversation. So I appreciate you taking some time. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Once again, a big thank you to Ellie for joining us today. I've included quite a few resources in today's show notes, which can be found on the podcast website at patternrecognitionpod.com. Now, we've got a whole host of great guests joining the show in the coming weeks. So I'd love if you could tweet your questions at me and I can give you a shout out during those interviews. You can find me on Twitter at John Heasy. That's J-O-H-N-H-E-E-Z-Y. So thank you all for tuning in and I'll talk to you next week. Bye.